1: Da, da, da. Good good afternoon, one and all Welcome back to the Two Tongues Podcast Chris, coming at you again with another solo episode Midweek, which means you got me, and only me, so help me God Alright guys, So here's the thing I was hoping uh, I could do part two of Chalmers' Conscious Mind this week But I cannot uh, Here's the thing it's a big book, guys. Um, I've been reading, let's see here, something like, I don't know, 50 pages or so. And the guy's talking about a word called supervenience. And he's been doing that for 50 pages. So there's just no possible way I'm going to come to you and sit here and talk to you about all the ins and outs of this one word. And this detailed philosophical explanation about what it means in different contexts because you would be bored to tears. You know how I know that? Because it was a little boring for me reading it. So um, I didn't want to do that. Instead what I think I'm going to do is keep reading and push through uh, the beginning part of um, the book uh, David Chalmers' conscious mind is—he uh, basically says that he's like, look, there's some really technical parts of the book. If you're a layperson, you might want to skip them. And I'm like, fuck, I'm not a layperson. I'm smart. Let me read that. Well, it was good advice. It was good advice that I didn't I didn't take. Uh, that reminds me of an Alanis Morissette song for you people who are old enough to get that reference. Uh, anyway, I'm going to read more of it. I'll get past the technical bit and try to get into some uh, some more good stuff, and then I'll. Compile it and uh, come to you with the with the good stuff. That's the idea. Um, got no interest in boring you. I got no interest of uh, boring myself. So that's why you're not getting the, the uh, Chalmers Conscious Mind Part Two today. And if you're wondering what's coming, I'll give you a little um, I'll give you a little sneak preview. Um, I've got two books sitting on my desk. One of which is next up after Chalmers. Uh, I talked about it a little bit but the guy's name is hard to pronounce, uh, but a doctor uh, a guy that's that uh, studies psychedelics and um, all and consciousness basically. so right up right up Kyle and Eye's alley, um, Peter Sot Hughes uh, book called Modes of Sentience. and I'll just give you a little taste here there's a there's a podcast called Mind Escape and you can you can hear an interview from not long ago uh, with the author and he talks about s- sentience. You know, I don't even know exactly how to pronounce that. Sentience. And he uses that word instead of consciousness. So we talk a lot about consciousness on this podcast. Nobody has any idea what it is. We all know what it is because we are conscious, but nobody can explain it. Nobody can understand where it comes from, um, whether it's necessary. You know, there's just lots of mystery surrounding consciousness. And um, going all the way back to people like Plato, uh, he would talk about, and maybe this was Aristotle and I'm confusing them, but whatever, he would talk about um, the consciousness that plants have versus the consciousness that, you know, higher animals have and the, and the consciousness that humans have and talking about them all differently. And that's what you would expect. I mean, I think we would all agree a plant is alive and probably has experience of some kind or other. In fact, I think there's experiments about that, like um, like electrical conductivity tests that they do on plants where you, like, you break off a, a branch or a, or, a, or a stem or something and you can see a reaction from the plant. It's like clearly there's experience going on. But is it the same kind of experience that you and I have if we break our finger off? You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But going way back to people like Plato and Aristotle, they made a distinction between different types of consciousness. And what the, what the gentleman who wrote Mo- Modes of Sentience has done is he's basically changed that vocabulary. So he's like, look, it's really difficult if you're going to talk about plant consciousness and animal consciousness. And it's as advanced as our scientific knowledge gets and as it develops, those words are just less successful. They're less capable of communicating what we're trying to communicate. And so sentience is a better way. Sentience is like general consciousness, experience. Um, not getting any more particular than that, so you can say an atom is sentient. An atom experiences it jumping, you know, from one orbital to another. It experiences its quantum leap. It experiences its fusion with another atom. Whatever, you know, it, it has some sort of basic type of experience, um, and then that's that's kind of helps you to understand. You know, it can be sentient, but not but not have consciousness like you and I have. So that's one that's going to be. That's going to be coming up here soon. I'm I'm kind of interested to get into it, if I'm being honest. Um, The other one was a recommendation on Twitter. I never heard of it. I don't know why. Um, But it apparently was a popular book in Europe in particular. It's called A Brief History of Drugs. The uh, subtitle is even better. From the Stone Age to the Stoned Age by a guy named Antonio Esch... Oh boy, Escohotdo. Yeah, it's probably wrong. Any case, um, it looks like a little book. It's not too bad. Uh, But the beginning of it talks about, it's called Remote Antiquity. It talks about drug use in remote antiquity. That's what I'm most interested to get into. So that's also going to be coming up on the Two Tongues podcast. Whether that be one of these solo episodes or... One where Kyle and I are getting together to do it together Maybe both, who knows Another interesting thing um, The episode Kyle and I have coming up on Sunday Is going to be the last episode of season one Dun dun dun, what does that mean? Well it means um, it's been a year So Sunday's episode will be our year anniversary of the Two Tons Podcast Pretty exciting, Uh, pretty exciting I don't know um, what we'll do but I kind of think both of us are on the same page. Maybe we'll have uh, we'll have one or more guests on people that we've talked to before on the podcast. Maybe a bunch of them. I don't know. It's easy easy enough to do these days with uh, you know with Skype and Zoom and, and all that. So so we can uh, we can do that. Um, I'm also gonna gonna arrange to have Mr. Daniel Tordin back on, who we talked to um, not long ago. From the UK, um, also also met through Twitter, but really interesting guy. Um, we said we were going to talk to him about uh, cults because he's got some firsthand experience in that world. And listen, how often do you meet somebody who does? You know, it's like I live in Ohio, guys. I don't live in California. I don't know any Scientologists. Um, you know, I've seen a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses uh, before. I've seen a couple of Mormons knocking on the door. Um, I certainly don't know any Branch Davidians or Moonies or anybody like that. I've read about them, and it's interesting. We've all seen those documentaries. It's very interesting. Uh, so Daniel's a guy that was in and out of the, of that experience, and he's kind of been through it. So we thought we were going to talk about that. And maybe we will. But my guess is the connection with religion is going to kind of take that conversation wherever crazy direction. Kyle and I want to take it. And by Kyle and I, I mean mostly me. Um, Anyway, today what are we doing today? Well, you remember last time I did a solo episode I told you um, about planning this podcast years ago and recording a couple of clips and um, they never published them. Uh, I still have them. Uh, The Audio quality is not good. But I did type everything out because my plan was maybe, like I said before, maybe to read it like a monologue, you know, like a like an opinion news person reading a monologue. Uh, but I found out pretty quickly listening back to those, it didn't didn't come across as very genuine, and um, I didn't I didn't love it. Um, and I've done some of that with the podcast, especially with my intros and outros, and you can you can tell the difference, you know, uh, but. I got a bunch of good material there and um, because I can't bring you Chalmers' Conscious Mind episode 2 today I am going to I want to give you part number 2 of what I prepared when I was uh, originally thinking about doing the podcast. You guys will remember uh, the last solo episode I did that led us right up to what I was going to try to describe my first mystic experience. Now I did that on the podcast a couple of times already. Um, maybe I did a better job of it than I did way back when. So I'm gonna read to you. I'm gonna read to you what I prepared back then. So I just want to say, as a grain of salt sort of item here, this was this was a while ago. My ideas have developed. My um, they've 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 sharpened, right? So like the some of these ideas were just kind of everywhere, and that happens. That you know that definitely happens when you try to wrap your brain around something like a mystic experience. Um, it's so big of an experience that you don't exactly know where to start. You don't know how to how to rein it in and uh, make it intelligible. That's that's one of the things people say about it. That it's it's um, it's not something that can be put into words. And so that's what I've tried to do. And this was my first attempt. So I'll remind you uh, where we left off at the last time. I was talking about kind of leading up to this mystic experience, telling you to just kind of. To, uh, you know, give me a little leeway here because the, a lot of the language is going to be symbolic and it's symbolic out of necessity because I got to talk in symbols and metaphors because what I'm speaking about can't be captured in language. You know, uh, we we talked about the the Tao was saying stuff like that. You know, the Tao that can be spoken of is not the real Tao. That's what they say. So the moment you open your mouth and you start describing it, you're 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 going on the path of, of uh, error. You know, so I'm going to do my best. Next thing I want to do though, before I jump into this, is I found a couple of, I found a ancient Greek quote that I liked, and I can't remember if I ever shared it on the podcast. So I want to I want to share it to you before I jump in. It's an ancient Greek name, Empedocles. A philosopher from the 400s BC. He said this. He said, The nature of God is a circle of which the center is everywhere and the circumference nowhere. Absolutely. Think about that for about a year. The nature of God is a circle of which the center is everywhere and the circumference nowhere. All right. Now I'm going to give you another quote. This one comes from Yours Truly, uh, something I coined back in 2019 that I thought was insightful, and I still do. Let's read it. To know and to be known is what connects us to one another and to the beginning of time. Let me read that again. To know and to be known is what connects us to one another and to the beginning of time. All right. Are you jazzed? Are you guys jazzed? All right. Here we go. This is going to be, I think, maybe a little bit of a longer one. I'm going to try to squeeze in what was originally multiple sections of this because I think they all kind of go together. Now, if you're ready for the monologue, here we go. I was 33 years old when I first had a mystic experience. It was, as advertised, awe-inspiring and overwhelming, unlike any ordinary worldly experience. It is even difficult to say that it was something that happened to me. Instead, this experience was more like a complete upheaval of my perceptions. I was no longer a self, and my experience no longer seemed to be something outside of myself. I was suddenly aware that the thing I am is not contained within a self, and that experience is not something imposed upon me. I was all things and all experiences simultaneously, but somehow still personally aware of it. I was one with the universe, as the expression goes. You will probably know already that at the start of this description, we find ourselves immediately beyond the scope of ordinary experience, of logic and rationality, and into the realm of symbol, metaphor, and intuition. This is because the subject of our discussion, the mystic experience, cannot be understood through concepts. Princeton philosopher W. Stacy put it this way, In religious symbolism, any literal proposition about God would involve the conceptualization of that which is above all concepts. He goes on to say, But religious symbolism is not, on this account, mere metaphor, because That which is symbolized is not a proposition about God, but the direct apprehension of his presence in religious or mystic intuition. I love that. When Stacey says that the mystic experience is beyond concepts, he means that it is not like anything in our ordinary experience. There is nothing like it, nothing even remotely comparable to it. It is immaterial, non-spatial, non-temporal, and therefore no, con- no concepts from our experience of material reality can be used to understand it. This is what is meant by it being unknowable and why it can only be spoken of in metaphor. The unknowable nature of the mystic experience is, as Stacey supposes, a consequence of it being an experience of what is also unknowable or beyond concepts. The mystic experience is the experience of the ultimate. More truly, it is a moment where you become the ultimate, or better still, the moment you remember that you have always been the ultimate. Having the mystic experience is the definitive intuition of the reality of being, it is the unimpeachable evidence. That the ultimate truth behind the veil of perception exists. Because in that experience, you have yourself become the ultimate. You cannot deny ultimate truth any more than you can deny your own existence. Now, you might reasonably wonder how the ultimate can remain unknowable and only accessible through intuition, even after one has become the ultimate. How can one who has had the mystic experience be unable to share it or even describe it? The reason for this is to be found in the nature of the ultimate. By necessity, I will speak in metaphor to illustrate my own intuition. Imagine a painter with every color imaginable available for his canvas. Imagine with each stroke of his brush, colors appear one by one against the white background. Red, blue... Yellow, green, purple, orange. After many layers, these colors yield new variants, thicker and darker, until all that is left is blackness. What happened? Where did the colors go? You see, all possible colors, when layered one atop the other, when taken as a whole, become black, the seeming absence of color. In the same way, imagine God as the potential for all possible things. When taken as a whole, all possible things merge together to become everything and simultaneously nothing. That thing which contains all possibilities, contains all properties, and is by its nature unknowable. There is nothing that exists outside of its itself that it can be used to reference or compare it compared to it without difference without limitations without external concepts without something other the ultimate cannot be described or to that end known it can only be experienced and intuited the ultimate or God is like all colors merged into one it is the blackness the no color From which all possible colors emerge it is the potentiality for each unique color to come into existence and yet to the observer it is no color at all the mystic experience is often called ego dissolving a designation that i would not wholeheartedly agree with but more often as an experience of oneness being one with the universe is the cliche descriptor. Upon having this experience, the overall structure and context of existence, of reality, is subtly but incontrovertibly altered. What I mean by this is difficult to describe, as it transcends the realm of intelligible ideas and is instead felt. It is visceral and imbued with such profound emotional significance that the faculty of emotion seems to be the sense organ best equipped to understand it. To say that experience leaves one with an unbreakable intuition, that all of reality, including oneself, is one indivisible and unified whole, strikes me as a fair summary. Having felt this way, so much of the way reality appears begins to feel inadequate or even illusory. The division of opposites, for instance, that strikes us ordinarily as the definition of mutually exclusive, instead begin to look more and more like a unified spectrum. Living and dead, hot and cold, these no longer seem to be opposing experiences, but rather two states of a single experience. They are relative, but intricately and inseparably connected. Upon reflection, it is easy enough to understand the division of opposites in this way. The ancient Taoist tradition, as an example, holds an axiom that for beauty to exist, ugliness must also. The concepts of living and dead, or of beauty and ugliness, therefore, cannot have independent existence. What meaning could the idea of living possibly hold if its opposite did not exist? Everything would be living, and so the idea of dead would carry no meaning. It would make no distinctions, and therefore would be irrelevant. Life would simply be a property of everything, and as such, it would become lost in the everything, losing its meaning and existential value. Similarly, and perhaps more powerfully, the ordinary understanding of objects become uncannily muddled one sees trees and people and sky as they always have and yet they become somehow an extension of the self and not separate objects with individual existence objects take on the quality of being somehow a reflection or representation of whatever it is that the observer is the experience of reality seems to be shared by and emergent from all of its inhabitants equally. There is the distinct feeling, just as in the description of opposites, that the objects in reality impart mutual existence to one another. They counter-define and impart meaning to one another by virtue of their existence. Stated differently, all things in reality act upon each other, functioning to create and sustain the whole of existence. But what is this action exactly? And what exactly is doing the acting? When considering material reality, we, in our modern age, are drawn to the explanations of empirical science. Science reveals to us unseen realms of existence. It recognizes and defines the most basic properties of matter and of the forces that act upon and within it. We see a world full of objects and experiences of cause and effect. And yet, science has shown us beyond the proof of our eyes that matter is but different forms and patterns of atoms. And atoms still are but different patterns of fundamental particles, which are convertible between states of energy and states of matter. What we find in this analysis is the fact that material reality seems to emerge from a prematerial state, and in fact, as quantum physics has demonstrated, from a state of potentiality or probability. What could this mean? Well, clearly the fact that all of material reality is composed from the same stuff, and that stuff is non-material, supports the notion of the oneness of reality. It also, however, challenges the materialist view that reality is nothing but matter. This point brings us again to the topic of perception because we know that reality is far more than the surface understanding of our sense experience. We must consider just how illusory our simplified perception of the world actually is. Descartes famously explored this idea and doubted everything he could At bottom, however, he could not discount his own awareness. You see, for Descartes, everything around him, even the very thoughts in his mind, could reasonably be considered an illusion. But the fact of his awareness of them could not. To Descartes, it was his consciousness that became the bedrock of reality. But what could this mean? How could the consciousness of a single human being be the bedrock of reality? How could this be true? One way in which it might be true is by considering the nature of consciousness to be more than the personality, memories, preferences, and history of an individual. If, for instance, we consider the science of psychology, it is well supported that they are parts, perhaps most, of our own consciousness that we are not aware of. This has been called the subconscious or unconscious, among other things. And it is quite clear to a self-aware creature that much of one's impulses, rationalizations, and motivations are very much hidden from our immediate awareness. We often do not know why we want X so badly or keep finding ourselves in the same dilemma over and again. We cannot say why we keep having dreams with this specific theme or why we find ourselves attracted strongly to a certain pursuit. Our interests, disgusts, and instinctive reactions are very much the same. We cannot say where they come from and certainly do not feel as though they are deliberate on our part. This is because they are not part of our immediate awareness but rather seem to spill over into it from elsewhere. Elsewhere, in this context, is the unconscious part of our consciousness that is somehow part of ourselves, and yet almost never part of our immediate awareness. It is the unknown part of ourselves. Isn't that an interesting statement? The unconscious part of our consciousness influences and informs our conscious awareness but in a way that we cannot seem to control and are often entirely ignorant of. What is this force, which both is and is not our consciousness? How can it act upon us, have understanding that we do not, and even transmit information to our conscious awareness? What manner of thing is this? The ancients understood this well and filled their mythology with examples of exactly this type of phenomena masquerading as gods. The Greeks were great observers, and when they discovered a force which had no natural explanation, but seemed to apply equally to everyone, they dressed this transpersonal force in the raiment of divinity, and dubbed it a god. As an example, the muses. They were thought to be The transpersonal force responsible for implanting creative impulses in the minds of men. When the question was asked, where does inspiration come from? It was self evident to the people of classical antiquity that it was not a product of that individual, but a sort of gift from the supernatural realm. States of altered consciousness, too, like drug intoxication or even an overwhelming psychophysiological state like lust, for instance. They were seen as transpersonal gods. The Greeks called them Dionysus and Eros. They acted upon one from seemingly outside the self. You see, these experiences were known by the Greeks to be universally applicable everyone was helplessly susceptible to the influences of the gods. Much like the modern idea of the unconscious, these transpersonal forces lay just outside of the natural world and could impose themselves at any time on anyone. Now that we have made plain that consciousness is vast and extends unknown lengths beyond our narrow frame of perception, it is easier to state that we participate in a larger reality than that available to us from our sense experience alone. As the psychologist Jordan Peterson said, quote, We're more than we understand by a tremendous margin. Okay, beyond mere philosophizing, there are accounts throughout history of people who claim to have encountered the unconscious or the fullness of consciousness. This has occurred as a consequence of intense meditation, ecstatic ritual, or exercise, starvation, sleep or sensory deprivation, and of course, through the ingestion of psychoactive substances. These accounts vary in specifics, but commonly include the feeling of dying or being at mortal risk of dying, the dissolution of time and space the disembodied sensation of floating, flying, or traveling. And most significantly, an immovable intuition that one's consciousness is the thing that animates and instills with meaning not only themselves, but all of existence. It is this, the intuition of undifferentiated being, that holds the greatest power, leaves the longest-lasting impression and accounts for the spiritual or religious sentiments that characterize these experiences. This state of undifferentiated being is the unknowable part of the self. It is unknowable for the same reason that beauty cannot exist without ugliness, because it is the all. The term non-being has been used to describe this state, and to my mind is an appropriate word. Undifferentiated being is non-being because it cannot be understood with reference to being at all. In the mystic experience, one's consciousness is felt to be oneself, just as an ordinary experience, but also everyone and everything else. It is a feeling of interconnectedness, but more still, a sort of remembering. The experience is much like being reacquainted with the fullness of one's own reality. Like coming to know again that the thing you are is the generator of existence and that you are only one instantiation among infinite others. Uniquely, this experience merges the thing we think of as the force of creation with creation itself. Moreover, this view accounts for non-material phenomena. Things like our subjective experience, emotion, and meaning, which a strictly materialist ontology leaves entirely unaccounted. Aside from the intuition imparted in the mystic experience that all is one in consciousness, is there any other evidence supporting this opinion? Well... In the realm of philosophy, from which all of modern science emerged, we find a long history of thought surrounding the unity of being, the illusion of sense perception, and the fundamental importance of consciousness. This is not a new idea, but has been with us from the very beginning of recorded history, and certainly much deeper than that. Some of the greatest thinkers of the Eastern and Western traditions expounded on the problem of perception and reality. From Plato to Kant, from Lao Tzu to Shankara, and the Rishis of the Upanishads, we are called to acknowledge the veil of perception. As our intellectual tradition progressed, the philosopher Hegel placed being directly into the light of philosophical scrutiny. He understood the idea of being as the prerequisite for experience, and by extension, reality itself. And then Heidegger, he too contributed to, with his concept of uh, Dasein, which unified the concept of being with the beings existing within it. See, Heidegger noted something so self-evident that it always simply was taken for granted. He noted that we are all beings in being. And as such, there is essential connection between the structure of material existence and that which being makes possible, matter, natural forces, and consciousness. In other words, the fact that beings emerge only from being means that they are in some critical manner an indivisible whole. From these foundations, that perception does not reflect the fullness of reality, that being is the foundation of reality and that being and beings are an inseparable unity, springs the philosophical ideas of pantheism, acosmism, and panpsychism. These ideas are essentially synonymous and claim simply that reality is indivisible, self-generating, self-sustaining, and eternal. One of the most notable proponents of this idea was the medieval philosopher Baruch Spinoza who claimed to have proved logically and even mathematically that the force of creation or God is identical to being itself. Following this thread, the path moves from the problem of perception to realization that consciousness is both creator and creation, both being and beings simultaneously. There is as it happens, an empirical body of evidence that further supports the mystic experience and the philosophical evidence. This comes to us from the science of physics and has been coined panpsychism. Panpsychism is not a new idea either, but in its modern form emerged from the early development of quantum theory. One of this theory's most vocal proponents today, the philosopher Philip Goff, states, quote, panpsychists believe that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical world. The very title itself, however, pan meaning all, and psyche meaning consciousness, supposes an even more dramatic claim, that being is in fact indistinguishable from consciousness. We, of course, intuit the correctness of this statement, It is, after all, self-evident that the world and ourselves exist in conscious experience. To exist in any other way is entirely unintelligible. Panpsychism has uh, been proposed as as a solution to the founding problems of quantum physics, that of particle-wave duality. So you may have heard the classic experiment described which relates to this problem. It's called the double slit experiment. And it involves firing electrons towards a barrier with two distinct slit shaped openings, which open to a screen on the other side. This experiment demonstrated an incredible outcome. Beyond the slits, electrons were not seen to fall in two distinct bands as one might expect, but rather in many more bands. So what the hell was happening? The solution to this problem was the proposal that the electron particles were behaving not as particles, but as a wave of probability. See, the interference pattern created by two electron waves combining on the other side of the slit openings created many parallel bands on the screen. Researchers were struck by the observation that matter on the smallest of scales did not act as a particle, but rather as a wave. This particle-wave duality, as astonishing as it is, was confirmed and replicated through experiment after experiment, even when firing one electron at a time, until the idea finally settled as the foundation of a new quantum science of fundamental reality. The notion that the most fundamental constituents of material reality, things we call elementary particles, could be both a particle and a wave simultaneously proved once and for all that material reality is far more complex than our sense perceptions suppose. Here we have an example of an object being at once two mutually exclusive states. Not one thing or the other, but both simultaneously. This is, however, no ordinary example, but one that rests at the foundation of our understanding of material reality. If elementary particles like electrons are to be understood as an uncertain combination of states of being, then all of material reality composed of those particles would, by extension, share this property. Stated differently, all of material reality must exist at bottom in a cloudy, uncertain state. What could this possibly mean? To answer that question, we introduce Werner Heisenberg. So enter the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. Okay, so to bolster the strange evidence from the double-slit experiment, physicist Werner Heisenberg added the mathematical proof that an elementary particle could not be measured in terms of its position and momentum at the same time. You can't pinpoint it to any certain place or state. So what does that mean? At the quantum level, it is not possible with certainty to know where a particle is and how it's moving at the same time. You see, the measurement of those properties together created, yet again, an uncertain and cloudy state of existence, a state known only in probability, or more correctly, in potentiality. This state physicists have dubbed the wave function. Taken as a whole, the evidence of the double-slit experiment, that matter exists as a particle and a wave simultaneously and Heisenberg's uncertainty principle that matter exists in a state of probability illuminate the nature of reality at the most fundamental level. The physicist Brian Greene describes matter as arising from, quote, electrons in quantum clouds. Whew, buddy. Building on this, physicists explored how a particle could exist in an uncertain state of probability or potentiality, but still be present within a macro object that exists in the material world? How matter can be composed from particles without this hard and true existence? Now, Niels Bohr, one of the founders of quantum physics, appears again to answer this question using the evidence garnered from quantum experimentation. Bohr noted that the act of measuring a particle's position or momentum was an action which affected the quantum system. You see, this action allowed the observer to know with certainty a particle's position or momentum. There was, therefore, something critical about the act of measuring that seemed to lift a particle from a state of potentiality to a state of certainty. The act of observation, Bohr claims, has now entered the picture as the force which, quote, collapses the wave function into certain reality. The question of the act of observation or measurement as somehow participating in the material certainty of matter brings us inevitably back to the topic of consciousness. It is, after all, consciousness which is required to make an observation or take a measurement. This is where the proponents of panpsychism step in to put it all together into one coherent theory. You see, if all material reality is nothing more than consciousness in a state of being, and if consciousness is required to collapse the wave function of a quantum system into certainty, then consciousness steps front and center in our understanding of reality. In this view, consciousness is both that which brings matter out of a state of potentiality and material reality itself. It is the stuff of material reality and its originator. It is both art and artist. Now, physics isn't done yet furnishing support for this idea. There is the concept of quantum entanglement, which observes how particles can become mysteriously linked Experiments show how particles, once entangled, can be separated by distances so large that no signal can pass between them. And yet, when one particle is changed, the other instantly mirrors its mate. The natural question here, and one that remains unanswered, is how can these particles know the state the other is in? How can one particle react to mirror its entangled mate when there is no conceivable means for communication between them, let alone instantly. One answer to this problem is embraced wholeheartedly by the panpsychists. This solution is the simple recognition of what physics has already proved, that all of material reality exists at bottom in a prematerial state which emerges from that state and is indistinguishable from it Consciousness is one unified whole, and so a particle existing within it is in some manner indistinct from the whole. It could be said that all matter is entangled because it is ultimately one single substance emerging from one singular event, the Big Bang. To the panpsychist and to the mystic, that substance is consciousness. Taking this to its natural conclusion... The observation which consciousness imposes on its prematerial substrate to collapse the wave function into being is the very act of creation. In this way, all material objects and forces of nature are but representations of that prematerial observation. Material reality serves to act upon or observe all other things in the quantum system. If, as the panpsychists believe, matter is conscious, then material reality imparts to itself certainty and being merely by observing itself, by being conscious. This is, after all, what consciousness does, perhaps what it is. Consciousness observes
0: See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode.